Hi, I'm Dee Sterling. I'm a lover of language and languages. I'm a storyteller. I'm also a businesswoman and the co-founder of Center for Entrepreneurs. Welcome to my podcast, Double Espresso with Dee. Over coffee, a very strong one in my case, I will get curious with my guests about their journeys in life and business and how they practice living courageous, creative and interesting lives. So um, I am beyond excited to welcome my guest today, this spectacular Sahar Hashemi. How are you? I am very well, Dee, seeing you across the screen. I know it's wonderful to see. We have to get a little picture actually at the end of the two of us exactly. on the screen. So Sahar, it makes me so happy to see you and to have you on the show. And um, you are my first uh, entrepreneur guest who has launched and successfully built uh, with your wonderful brother, a coffee company. And of course, Double Espresso with D is all about coffee and talking. <laughs> Both things matter an awful lot to me, as you know. <laughs> and, you know, I think even in the year that's been, coffee became a kind of unifier because people were on their Zoom with their coffee in the morning instead of going to a meeting, or they were walking around the park with their family or a friend, often over coffee. So it's super exciting to have you on the show. And just for the benefit of those who may not know you, I am going to give a quick little overview of your spectacular journey thus far. So you started as a lawyer. That must feel like a very long time ago. <laughs> um, and with your brother, you co-founded Coffee Republic, which was the first UK chain of coffee bars. You together built that business, scaled it rapidly and sold it some years ago very successfully. You then identified a new market segment, which was sugar-free sweets. And you went back for another tour of duty and built Skinny Candy, both successful exits. As if that weren't enough, seriously, woman, you are the best-selling acclaimed author of two books. Anyone can do it. It's been translated into multiple languages, still on the bestseller list on books on entrepreneurship in this country and elsewhere. Uh, you've written Startup Forever, your latest book, which um, really expands your thesis that anyone can be an entrepreneur, just have to go for it, want it, and you also give them some steps to follow, which we'll come back to. Laterally, you have put your razor-focused attention to the theme of innovation and entrepreneurship in big businesses. And if there ever a time that they needed it, it's now, particularly given the world we're in and changing times, I guess the need for innovation and agility is more important than ever. Along the way, you've also become a renowned speaker on international platforms. You are a multi-award winner, including an OBE for services to this country for charity and your help from uh, an economic perspective in business and entrepreneurship. And I love this pioneer to the life of the nation. I mean, how beautiful is that? Uh, an award from Our Majesty the Queen. Uh, you've been very active in public life. Don't worry, I'm nearly finished. Uh, you've co-chaired <laughs> um, the UK government Scale Up and you're on the board of the Scale Up Institute. So let's start with coffee. You know, when I lived in Milan all those years ago, I would go to this little bar at the end of the street and there was like one type of cappuccino. You had the cappuccino with the same milk, the same coffee, the same everything, right? Now there are 20s, 10s, 20s of varieties of, you know, coffees, milks, uh, way to make the coffee. Now in London alone, there are thousands of coffee bars. There are chains, there are uh, smaller niche stores. There are also initiatives like 
Change Please Coffee, which you're involved in, which are utterly brilliant, mm-hmm. you know, working to reinstate in the workplace homeless people in this instance and others that do the same for former prisoners, both themes which are very close to my heart, as you know. So going back to way back then, why coffee and where did it start? Gosh, well, I mean, yeah, it, it's so funny just making the connection between me and coffee. Uh, but I suppose, you know, like most people, for me to wake up, I need my dose of caffeine to wake up. I mean, I'm, I'm not right. a human being until I've had that first <laughs> espresso shot. And um, really, I just love it, you know. And I just remember distinctly when I was at university, I was at Bristol University, and there was a sort of cafe opposite. And I just remember that time. It was the first sort of bit of my adulthood that I remember you know, going to this every, you know, after lectures, going to this kind of coffee bar and getting a cappuccino. That was a start of cappuccino culture. But now actually, as, as I'm talking to you, I just remember as a child, sort of almost emulating my mum and making a little sort of, you know, um, a little Nespresso, for my, uh, uh, not, uh, yeah, not an Nespresso, I can't even believe the word, a, a Nestle instant coffee. I would of make course. it pretend as, as if I was having a coffee morning. So I loved that whole ritual of kind of coffee. I loved Coffee Mate. It's a know, ritual, that you used to put isn't in your it? Coffee. That's it. Yes, yeah, exactly. So I think I've always loved that whole thing. But, um, you know, in no way am I a sort of coffee connoisseur whereby, you know, I obsess about the beans and stuff. I mean, I've always loved coffee, you know, because I also love sweets. So I've got like, I love bakery products. I love biscuits to go with sweets. So it's really been my area. Do you know right. what I mean? It's sort of, um, as in my area of like greed, I suppose, rather than anything else. I've sort <laughs> of, I love that. And, you know, my favorite thing, I suppose my favorite meal of all time, Dee, is my morning um, latte. Yes. And ideally, if I wasn't on a sort of constant diet, I'd have it with a or a brioche every morning. <laughs> but yeah, it's definitely kind of, you know, if there was one meal I genuinely love, that's my breakfast. Do you think and that's the sort of, you know, of it. it's like the moment of hope, isn't it? You know, like completely. I, I'm completely. having a Proustian moment. You're really taking me back to living in <laughs> Milan, you know, and I'd, I'd be up early and yeah. I'd walk down the street completely. and it, it, everything was starting to bubble. People weren't quite out yet. You know, it's this moment of this ritual of hope in a way, right? To get you launched You're into so right. the day, right? It's beautiful. And we're, we're probably both morning people because, you know, right. we have that hope in the morning and it's just exactly the days ahead. I'm full of energy. You know what I mean? The coffee smells great. Yeah. I'm kind of, everything is possible at that hour hour for right. me in the morning right I mean what happens the rest of the day <laughs> you know at that, at that it really is I peak with that that sort of first I sort of light up and ev- everything is possible yeah. absolutely that second when I'm having my coffee so from there take me to that moment when you had this idea in your head I think you were in New York yeah, so exactly and something yeah so I mean so basically provoked at this, at this, it, right yeah no, so I mean, at this point, you know, I'm a lawyer, I'm not thinking about any business ideas. And I just very innocently um, make a trip to New York to visit my brother, Bobby. And um, as you know, when you arrive across the Atlantic, um, when you could travel, you have that terrible jet lag. So you get up very early in the morning. And I just remember getting up really early in the morning thinking, you know, I love walking around the streets of New York. But, you know, let me kind of, you know, sort of find breakfast somewhere and to start. And really, I was looking for those old style American diners where, you know, they put the bottomless cup and, you know, that sort of constant sort of, you know, brown liquid that, you know, I don't know how Americans drink that sort of quantity of liquid in the morning with a tinge of coffee taste. So thinking, oh, my God, well, I'm in New York, I'm going to get that. You know, this is not Europe. This I'm going to get one of those. And I literally just remember exactly that moment, Dee, where I was on Madison Avenue where I was like, mm, I smelled freshly ground coffee beans on the pavement on Madison Avenue. Like, what is this? Divine, and, right? Uh, 
a bit like that sort of Bisto Kid advert, sort of my little nose is like twitching, thinking, oh, I'm going to follow the smell in. And I just remember walking into this place called New World Coffee. And just the thing I remember was they, on the, their walls were covered with coffee beans, which had been framed. And I just thought that just looked so cool, the framed coffee beans. And it was all about where the coffee comes from. And it was all about coffee. And you could hear the sort of hiss of the machine and the crunching of the grinder. So evocative, isn't it? So evocative. So it was basically, they turned something, which rather for me was sad, like me sitting by myself, like in the morning at home, kind of, you know, um, boiling the kettle and, you know, getting a slight whiff out of my two scoops of instant was suddenly this kind of like, oh my God, like this smells there. I mean, it was absolutely like a sort of symphony of coffee and flavors and wonderful everything to do with that morning and I, I just fell in love with it I remember walking in thinking my god this is like you know that whole energy is encapsulated into this experience and then what I loved I remember just looking at that sort of menu and then I just remember looking at these muffins you know and I love muffins like my favorite things and they had I remember fat-free blueberry muffins oh, and fat-free lemon bliss. and biscuit and so I was literally I just I was in heaven and I've actually got a picture of that moment of that, you know, looking at all those wonderful sort of American style muffins. And then the guy saying to me, you know, how would you like your latte? Would you like it with full fat milk, skim milk, semi skim milk, soya milk? You know, what sort of. Oh my God, a pioneer, right? <laughs> I mean, like, do you know what I mean? It was literally like, and then he was like, would you like to go? And then I remember you could put vanilla powder on it, you could put cinnamon powder, you could put chocolate. And I just fell in love with it. It was like sort of playing game. I, I don't know what it was. I just kind of thought this is brilliant. Oh. And, you know, different sizes and the kind of, and then those syrups were brilliant. So I just kind of, I suppose the child in me still sort of fell in love with it. I just thought this is brilliant. I just want to go and play this kind of coffee thing every single day. So that's really when that kind of light bulb got in. But I mean, it was never a light bulb to start a business. I just couldn't wait to go every morning. And I did. And I couldn't wait to go and get my coffee fixed there and then sit, you know, by the window watching New York go by. I mean, it's this wonderful sort of nursing my lovely latte. And when I came back to London, it was this casual conversation I had with my brother Bobby that how much I missed it. And of course, he got the light bulb. I never got the light bulb. Right. It was him who got the light bulb and said, oh, my God, did you say coffee bars? You know, I'd heard about coffee bars. He'd heard about them when he was working in New York as an investor banker. And it was completely his idea who said, you know what, now that you've said it, you and I should bring those styles of coffee bars to the UK because there's nothing like it. Oh, my God. So when did you then post that conversation, actually take the plunge? Because it's iterative, isn't it? You know, you're working as a lawyer and like many people today, and we always talk about this, you know, people have got side hustles and all sorts of things as they launch their idea or concept or their MVP. So how did that next period look when you actually decided to go for it? Yeah, well, the funny enough, at that point, actually, was um, it's a kind of bit of a further back story, but I actually had left the law firm. You'd had enough, and right? Because, um, yeah, I'd had <laughs> enough, and I'm sure they would have kept it. I think as well, when I look back, I might have had some conversations that perhaps my future there was, you know, I, I don't think I was a great lawyer. So I think, do I mean, they sort of, yeah, I, kind of, I wasn't actually kicked out, but I, I, I don't think they told me that partnership was, was in the tracks for me. So um, I, I had left. So at that point, I didn't have a job. And I just remember the next morning, the, all I did, and this is what I, what I owe to my education and my kind of experience working as a lawyer is, you know, instead of thinking about it, instead of talking about it, I just got myself to the nearest tube station and just went for myself around the circle line that's got 27 stops on it and did my own market research, getting off at every single of the stops on the circle line. Brilliant. Just to see, you know, was, that, was this idea valid? Is there a market for it? Is there a need for it? And of course, I just couldn't believe I didn't see anything. I saw old star sandwich bars 
and I didn't see anything. There was there was nothing. I just couldn't believe that no one had actually started this yet. And when I came home, I always say that's the night I became an entrepreneur. I mean, very far from it, but that one percent seed of entrepreneurship kind of that's where it started. That one percent that night when I got back from the trip on the Circle Line because I thought. I suppose this is what people call a gap in the market. Right. And also all these terms that we talk about today, like taking the leap and jumping in and, you know, getting on. It was different, right? The the entrepreneurial culture wasn't, I mean, of course, there were lots of entrepreneurs, but it wasn't so prevalent. I think young people of our generation at that time were going into banking or consulting or, you know, major corporates. There was no side hustle situation going on, really. It wasn't really a thing as such. Completely. Right? I mean, it was Richard Branson, literally. It was Richard and, Branson. And maybe, um, sort of Anita Roddick, but, you know, she didn't tell the story. And Lynn Franks, I mean, there were like three of them, literally, that publicly one knew. Did you feel any fear at that time? Because, I mean, in a way, there's, you know, I always think there's no time like now to start a business. And also for young people today, I mean, you know, what can go, you know, the, what's the worst that can happen? You know, nothing will happen if you don't give it a go for starters. And you've nothing to lose when you're in your early 20s, really, do you? Maybe a bit of money yeah. <laughs> if you have some. Yeah. But what was that first year like for you? What, what, how did it evolve? And, you know, when you really got stuck in and realised what you were actually doing? So, you know, I mean, you know, very up and down. I kind of, you know, a lot of times when I retell the story, because we knew Coffee Republic became a success, it can sort of seem like a fairy tale. But, you know, it's very much when you're out there by yourself, you know, you've before, you know, you've had a job, you know, I could have gone in-house as a lawyer, although sure. I kept getting rejected, so I probably wouldn't have got the job. But, you know, it's just like suddenly you're sitting there and you've got this idea. And, you know, the thing about new ideas is you sort of, no one wants to know about a new idea. You know what I mean? Every, it's sort of, one has to remind oneself that no one thought, oh my God, brilliant idea, you know, coffee bars, they're going to really work. You know, you don't have the benefit of hindsight. And um, and it was just sort of, you know, little old me sitting there with that idea. My brother was kind of pursuing something else and he was very much, you know, I kind of in our book is the sort of faxes between him and I. So he was very much directing me and leading me and inspiring me because he had studied business. So he knew what the right. steps were. But it really was just little me sitting there looking at sites, going and seeing suppliers who thought my idea was crazy. It's really a, a sort of obstacle battle. Yeah. And and in no way did anyone across, I swear to God, this whole year say, oh my God, that's going to be a brilliant idea. All they did was sort of punch holes in it. Yeah, and go, so what was, why it wasn't really going to work. Sure and, yeah, exactly. So just it's sort of always really important to remember that, that, you know, people hate new things and you've got absolutely no credibility with a new idea. And I think you're actually, you're most vulnerable when you've got a new idea because it's somewhere in your head, you you know, of course you're not hundred percent sure it's going to work, but you know, the important thing is, as you said, it just, you just put one foot in front of the other every day and try not to overthink it until the idea that is just like washing up liquid in your hair, in your head becomes something a bit more tangible. That's got a bit of momentum at that time. So when did you feel that, the two of you that, you know, it was really starting to move and it was becoming reality. Was it when you opened the first site or when, when was that moment? Yeah, it was, I mean, you know, I just remember it took us an age, you know, sort of, you know, kind of had the idea in November, really, you know, raised money in April, you know, took a long time, you know, a lot of rejections from bank managers. And then we finally got a site somehow the next year. So we opened the stores one year after the conversation. And still, when we opened the stores, I just remember the night before was actually horrible, Dee, when I think about it, you know, it kind of, it was just, I felt so vulnerable. I felt so, ooh. And I remember even when we closed the doors to the first day, 
and everyone was coming in. I was like, ooh, like it just felt really weird. I just remember it, 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 it you know, it wasn't that, oh my God, this is Do working. you know what as well? It's, it's probably, it's, you're just making me think it's like this moment where you um, have to show yourself in a way, even Absolutely. if it wasn't your name or the family name on the tin as such, it's yeah. when you're revealing yourself to a, a public market. And That's I right. think it's quite daunting for anyone, whether it's, you know, Completely. and you've had this many, many times in your life also, you know, with books, yeah. because, you know, if you're putting exactly. something in the public market, you want, you want to offer a service or a product, you want people to read your book, etc. And that must provoke quite strong emotions, as you say, vulnerability, and just like, oh, my God, you know, questioning yourself, right? Absolutely. Yeah, you're, you're sort of laid bare. And you know what I mean? And you sort of have nothing to kind of fall back on at that time. And um, and it is. And it's just always remembering that, you know, it's not kind of, you know, amazing sort of celebration. It's actually a really deeply vulnerable time. And hopefully with hindsight, you look back on it and it can seem a bit sort of fairy tale. You always forget those things. You know, you always forget really how you felt and how vulnerable oh, you totally. felt. Oh, totally. But I also think there's growth yeah. in those moments. Like you learn, you know, whatever age you are. Yeah. You know, you learn something about yourself, don't you? And I always think yeah, that, you know, and, and you and I've had lots of conversations about this, but sometimes like the worst times subsequently are just so fabulous because you survived. Exactly, you know, it wasn't exactly. life or death. And you learned something about your own yeah. level of resilience and fortitude, which makes you stronger. That's right. That's you know, right. The next time well, around. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And it all depends um, on your sort of upbringing. I mean, I mean the way it was brought up. My mum used to say, it's the hard that makes it so great. Love that. There was a sort of greatness in the hardness of it. Yeah. And I always know that it's not meant to be easy. You know what I mean? So I was always taught, I think, that it's not meant to be easy. And kind of it's when it's a struggle that it's good. So that must be somewhere in, in, in my psyche that I just remember that when it's hard, that that's the greatness of it that you know because it was easy everyone would be doing everyone it. be doing it of course it's kind of meant to be yeah. hard in a way right so yeah if you look back now at that incredible time and that extraordinary journey what would that give me a few of the highs and lows and also we're all wise men when we look back right? if there were one or two things that you would do differently now what would they be uh, well I mean you know the highs were just just incredible you know at that point you know we grew it very quickly to 110 stores incredible and you know i'm someone with you know i'm again you know as i said back to you know i love bakery products you know i was always the top of kind of you know whatever i wanted you know, the best chocolate chip cookies and you know i remember we were the first to bring um they had oreo cookies we're not in the uk and i remember we found a supplier to have oreo cookies in so there exciting. Have donuts and you know um kind of innocent smoothies and you just name it or kind of the gingerbreads kind of it was just finding stuff and having this incredible creative outlet was incredible and people loved Coffee Republic so I could kind of test things out and you know I remember even when Starbucks finally arrived we had to make our version of a frappuccino that we called a freezer and it was trying that out and so creatively it was absolutely extraordinary and you know people loved us and we were very lucky about that state so when we tried things once we had momentum it was just great to be able to roll it out and it was a real creative outlet I must say but then you know, the, the real mistake, I suppose, that we made was that after five years, when we built it from sort of zero to 110, it was this feeling that, okay, um, now you've built it, now you're a big company with thousands of people and 110 stores across the UK, and it's time for you to let go. The kind of entrepreneurial phase is right. over, you know, the time Sahar for you to sort of sit there tasting stuff in the kitchen and going to the stores every day is just, that's not professional. That's not what professional companies do. That's very startup-y and you're not a startup anymore. So behaving startup-y is quite inappropriate. Right. 
And that's when... Was this when, the people in um, suits Lisa kind of giving a directive on, on this type of thing or just the general yeah. advice, right? It's, it's people in suits. Uh, the general advice and also that's, even with the general advice we believed in, you know, because we could have, you know, that, I only wish we didn't believe that, but it was just this general advice that, you know, it was really that thinking at that time that, you know, people that run, that start a company and people that run a company are completely different and that there's a sort of handover that you've got to give and that if you actually really love your company and you genuinely do love your company like a child i mean it really of is course. that if you really care about it it's become an adult so you know you gave birth to baby and then it was a toddler and then it was a sort of teenager and then once it becomes an adult you become like the over controlling parent trying to stunt the growth of your offspring so if you really love it you give it to others who are more um suited to run it and that was an absolutely huge mistake right. yeah right what happened after that and what so 2001 so you know we we had we were sort of valued at um we had a market cap of you know 50 million and we were on the main stock exchange and so it was meant to be a kind of great story of selling and you know sort of but it was just really sad because of course suddenly had sold the new management team was like actually you know we don't want you around anymore because right. we want to have management and you're too entrepreneur you're too passionate you know you guys i remember my sort of contents on my desk oh, were sort of sent back to me terrible. and saying it's time for the kind of the suits, you know, the grown-ups is what Silicon Valley calls a takeover. And, you know, all the kind of financially we'd done well, I felt this incredible void because I absolutely loved what I did. So it was like someone had completely cut off my creative outlet. Like there was nothing anymore. It was really, really sad. So how did you process that? I mean, and how long did it take you to kind of move along from that? Because that's such a profound feeling, right? It's, it's, as you said, it's a bit like your child. Yeah, it, it was really, it was really difficult. I remember it was April. 2001 when that happened and I just remember that that sort of feeling I was a weird feeling around April was suddenly I was back at home and I just remember bumping into someone who who didn't work another woman and I was like oh my god like I'm one of those people now you know I'll be going to sort of food shopping at sort of four o'clock and it just I just can't tell you it was felt so and you know it kind of there's a certain amount of you know kind of free time and you know people that's why I always tell you know entrepreneurs when they get tired. It's sort of you love what you do every day. I mean, for me, it was what I loved doing every day. I mean, you know, going to lunch with girlfriends or going to I don't know yoga class or shopping. I mean, it was just the joy is you know what I did was was actually my hobby. I mean, I didn't have a hobby because I was a hobby, and so it's like I taken my hobby, and then um and then September the eleventh happened sort of soon after. So that was a bit of a kind of you know a bit of a a bit like the shock we've been through. I suppose it was something where universally it was an experience for everyone. Right. And then it was really after that, when things stopped, that someone suggested I write a book and I thought I can't possibly write a book. But really that, that was the catalyst for me. And I thought, actually, do you know what? Um, maybe it is good. Maybe it would be cathartic for me to write about this experience. And um, thank God at that time, you know, I had sort of files that I still had of faxes between Bobby and I and the first drawings and stuff like that. And, and I thought it'd be a really good idea for me to go through that and just see what happened. You know, how did I become an entrepreneur? I was not an entrepreneur. So how on earth did that happen? So it was almost like, because it happened so quickly, Dee, that I sort of I needed to piece together as to what we just been through in these right. incredible Right, and the velocity at which yeah. you operated, and you probably never really let up because I think when you're an entrepreneur and you're in that headset, you never really have a relaxing time, do you? You know, you're on holiday and you're constantly Absolutely. buzzing with it. And, you know, as we all know, when you sell something at the beginning of the month, it's always a zero, right? As Sean has said, um, yeah. you know, and That's you start right. again. And, and we, we, you know, we, we all have this and we have this in businesses we're involved in yeah. today. When you wrote that book, which is incredible and has had huge success as well. Um, how did you feel about yourself 
I mean, obviously, writing a book is like having another child, and and you know, it's a slog, isn't it? But how did you feel about yeah. what you you had done together? You know, sort of standing back and going, "Gosh, what 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 did you learn about yourself?" Yeah, it was interesting. It was I really saw when when I started um, doing the book, and actually had a um a great friend of mine who's sadly no longer with us, and he really helped me sort of structure right. the book. And and it was almost like seeing that actually there was a method to it, you know. That's and once I discovered that actually it's not this idea of Richard Branson and you're some genius with an idea, it's actually a method. And I suppose it was a lawyer in me, it was the sort of banker and Bobby. You know, we, we were brought up with these disciplines, and I sort of almost figured out, and anyone can do it, that it's a step by step process, and that actually if I did it, anyone could do it. So they're really interesting. So I really got into the book that year after September 11th, when, you know, just suddenly thinking, my God, there, there's a method. And as I was writing, it was just, it was really extraordinary just thinking, you know, just, just how there was a system and how if I could share that system with people and say, listen, this is what happened to us, then it will inspire so many others. Which it, it has had, done, right? We just had no idea. Yeah, it, it is. And that book, I have to say, is my pr- sort of proudest achievement because I just can't, you know, just the fact that I did that and, you know, there's so many people uh, that have been inspired by it. And I think it was just really no one at that time had taken, it was sort of almost, we said, half textbook, half case study. And it was like, listen, you know, we did the market research, therefore that's what you've got to do. And it was really all the lessons. I don't know why, really the soul of that journey. I almost think started Coffee Republic just to be able to share the journey in that book. Well, here's the thing. I mean, your approach is very much that of bringing your heart and your honesty and your openness and you're very real in, in how you are and how you operate. And I think you really bring that to your, your books as well and your talks. And people can, it's relatable, right? It can make people feel that it's yeah, not something absolutely. where they have to do, you know, an MBA plus, plus, plus to actually get going, which is, you know, a wonderful gift that you can give to so many, which you've been doing for years. So tell me, um, you know, you wrote the book, just coming back to that trajectory, and you decided to go back for more and you founded Skinny Candy. Where were you psychologically, emotionally at that time when you were thinking about doing something else? And how did you go about working out over and above your love of sweet things? Maybe that was the trigger, Um, you know, that that was the sector, that there was a market that had been untapped, untouched. It was a new segment. What was behind that? Yeah. So basically, so the book came out and then the book got me and then sort of it started becoming successful and I get asked to speak at events and things like that. And I ended up traveling quite a lot. And of course, love bakery products, but also love sweet things. And then a book had come out called Sugar Busters that my mum really believed in sugar busters. It was this sort of, I suppose it was like 1990s book in right. America. And she was like, oh my God, sugar's really bad. And this is before anyone said sugar was bad for you. My mum had just decided, and my mum who was so enlightened. She got it covered, hadn't she? Kind of literally light in my life. She got the whole, exactly. <laughs> she was like, listen, sugar's really bad for you. And so she got me reading this book, Sugar Busters. And so it was very early on that I kind of had done a sort of sugar detox and thinking, I love sweets. And then make a connection. My grandfather was actually diabetic. Right. And I remember in my childhood, I used to feel so sorry for my grandfather that he couldn't have sweets because I just thought, actually, there's no worse curse <laughs> in the world if you want chocolate. And things. So I would actually, as a child, always, and then whenever we traveled, especially around Europe and America, I'd go to the, the pharmacies and find um, diabetic sweets for him. And you know, I, I couldn't believe that he could actually have sweets. Or and so I always knew that there, was, there were sweets without sugar, and then suddenly, so I sort of made that connection, doing like loads of the sort of traveling, thinking I actually want a sweet, I actually want a little cola bottle, I want a Smartie. But, you know, what about if I, if we take the sort of almost diabetic ranges that everyone's got, 
mainstream. Absolutely, not a pharmaceutical basically. product, and, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Not a fun. And and that that was what Skinny Candy was. And I was longing to, to go back into commerce. I really missed commerce. What did you, know you miss? I really missed having a product. If, if there were, if there was an element. I mean, was it the, doing the deals? It's, it's that creativity. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. It's yeah. just the creativity. I just missed. I missed talking to consumers. I missed coming up with the logo. And you know, what I mean, it was just kind of you know, coffee market was so wonderful that sort of you tried things and. I don't know how I did it. Just came naturally to me that kind of thing because I am such a consumer because I'm such a greedy consumer, really. Um, and so, and then again, it was back to doing a logo and back to oh, doing wonderful. the packaging and back to doing a sort of quirky messages on the packaging and and that was a great experience. Um, and you know, and it was sort of really well received. We got it into. I remember the first place we got into was Hard right. Nichols, and then Selfridges. And I've got pictures of myself actually doing the tastings. You know, literally sitting. You know, it was all starting again. I really missed yeah. that journey and. There was I literally manning the tasting um, little stand like itself. Brilliant, right? Give me, yeah. Going back to you know what Steve Jobs calls you know the sort of lightness of being a beginner again. Yeah, and not knowing what you don't know, I think as well. I mean, it's not like you know. Yeah. This was obviously you'd been in food and, and beverage, but it was another segment, right? And so, of course, there's learning you transfer. Exactly, but, and it was just that journey. Right. Yeah, and you know, I would say the you know this idea of why entrepreneurs are serial entrepreneurs because. It's just so, just so magical, that journey that, you know, in a way, I mean, painful, but magical that you just almost want to do it again and again. You know what I mean? You really miss the high, I suppose. It's, it really is. It's, you miss the buzz. And Skinny Candy was there to give me that buzz. And so coming to today, I know you are working on this incredible new venture, which is shortly to be launched. And you've been very helpful to me. <laughs> Thank you, Dee. I've, I've, I've picked your brain. Uh, always and, and forever. Anything for you. Um, tell us a little bit about that. I'm super psyched about it. I think it's, you know, timing as we know is everything. And I think the timing is perfect. And anyway, tell us about that. And we can resume because I have some comments on, you know, women in business and those differences. And I think what you're doing is a kind of reflection of that as well. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, always in my journey of kind of writing Anyone Can Do It and talking about entrepreneurial culture, you know, I genuinely believe um, women make amazing entrepreneurs because I think a lot of the qualities that we naturally has a, have as women, you know, almost qualities that used to make us the butt of jokes, you know, in a way, the fact that kind of, you know, we are the, the perfect consumer, the fact that we're emotional about what we do, the fact that we're chatty, the fact that, you know, we're multitasking, you know, all those qualities are actually qualities that make a great entrepreneur, which is what made me a great entrepreneur, because, you know, there was sort of some, you know, loving bakery products. And, and getting excited and about then, it, right? You know, just Right. Getting excited about it and just really wanting it yeah. for myself. You know, it was just, it was my own, it was unmet. It was sort of scratching yeah. my own itch. And, you know, having the confidence and um, that journey of Coffee Republic and they're writing about it, I kind of thought actually there are a lot of women, you know, because women just feel so strongly about things. So they're true. About things they buy. And, um, exactly. And it's just sort of, that's why they make such great entrepreneurs because they've got the passion, they've got the empathy, they've got the result. Women are incredibly resourceful. We're resourceful. So anyway, so I've always believed in female entrepreneurship and I've done as much as I can around encouraging female entrepreneurship. And it was very much, um, I saw a tweet in November in our second lockdown, or was it? Yeah, I think it was the second lockdown only in November, 2020. Um, a tweet came across my timeline and the tweet was, listen, you know, you can support female founders, of course, by mentoring them or uh, investing in them. But what about just buying their products Genius. and services? So obvious, you know, that's right? That's how you change for it. So obvious. You know, that's how you change it for them, buy their products and services. 
And that really was the light bulb. And I just remember again where I was with that light bulb. And I kind of thought that's just really simple and really obvious because, you know, I've never been encouraged to buy more from female founders. And it happens to be that, you know, both you and I are in the ecosystem and, you know, we, we kind of were a lot of judging panels. And I know exactly which brands around me are female founded. But, you know, the average consumer doesn't. Um, so the campaign is um, what I built with my uh, sort of partner who's a marketing guru. And it's called Buy Women Built. Brilliant. So Buy Women Built is what it says on the tin. It's basically a way of identifying all these incredible female founded businesses around us and getting behind them. And you have to get behind them, not because we don't, you know, it's something against, you know, because I'm not at all like, you know, we're against male businesses. It's just that there's a need right now because we are very, we are far behind in our rates of entrepreneurship in this country, 30% behind them. Oh, it's shocking, Canada. shocking. And, you know, don't get me started every year, you know, and, and I say this many times, you know, at Centre for Entrepreneurs, we're looking to get more women on the programme, back more women entrepreneurs. Yeah. And it's a real struggle. And I think that yeah. we now as consumers, you know, particularly after the year that's been when many people have looked at how they consume, their rates of consumption, how they waste, you know, be it clothing, be it food, be it whatever. And, you know, one would hope there'll be a little bit of recalibration on that front. But I think it's even more than ever given rise to the whole sort of where do we put our money? Where do we spend? What do we buy? Absolutely. And, you know, young people are leading the way in this, aren't they? They will go far and wide to find a vegan brand or something that's, you know, repurposed, etc. Yeah, exactly. I mean, for young people, it's sort of, it's almost buying from a brand is, it's equivalent to investing in the the purpose and the values of that brand that's how they see it so which is really interesting very different so i think i think your timing is absolutely fantastic and i'm very excited for launch which is imminent so coming back to um entrepreneurship you know we've often had conversations around um just getting stuff done no matter what like taking the steps and getting on with things and also being quiet you know about a concept or an idea because it takes time to give life to something if it's an idea in your head. And, you know, to That's your point right. about Absolutely. vulnerability, you know, at different points on the curve, you can feel exposed if you talk too early about your idea or you can give it a life that doesn't yes. exist yet. So talk me through your, you know, your tips around those subjects, because I think people often have an idea. They don't know what to do with it. The number of times people go, I nearly did this, nearly did that, haven't really been able to get going. What is your... Uh, counsel for all those people because there are many of many ages and stages yeah no absolutely I, I come across the whole time I mean, the one thing I would say about never ask for validation about your idea because I think you know, if anyone's got a business idea if you've got a panel made up of Richard Branson Elon Musk you know Mark Zuckerberg you name it you know they're all sitting there they still won't be able to tell you whether or not your idea is good enough because all it is is just True. an idea so, you know, what I really believe is the idea should be almost like a starting gun in a race. You get the idea and you've got to get down and try to make it happen. And as you make it happen, you then figure out whether or not it's a great idea. So the one thing people should never do is that sort of navel gazing of, oh, I think I've got a great idea. Let me go and speak to someone amazing. You know, everyone's looking for a mentor now. Let me just go and speak to literally, you know, kind of Elon Musk and he can tell me if the idea is good. No, no one, no one knows. It's your idea. And you've got, you know, it's all about the execution of the idea and you've got to make it happen. So 
you know, keep it yourself because otherwise you're going to having to defend your idea the whole time to people. And my God, I think when you've got a new idea, the world is there to sort of pop your balloon. I mean, literally throw your idea right. down the flames. And especially people that, that are very close to you are, you know, do that a lot as well. So I think keeping the idea to yourself is really, really important until it's basically about momentum. You know, an idea in your head has, is in complete inertia. But the more you act on your idea, the more momentum it's got. So hopefully when someone comes and sort of really pops your balloon about it or, you know, somehow kind of denigrates it, by that stage, it's got enough momentum that you're not going to I be think that's off. right. So it's sort of, it's, it's it is, And I think balance. as well, that there's that point when you're actually doing something with your idea, which has become a concept, which you've given life to, even if it's a tiny baby as such, right, where people like to start giving advice. And that to me is a moment where things are starting Absolutely. to happen because people have a, you know, have a viewpoint about where they can contribute or where they can get involved or, yeah. or you know, maybe quite negative, right? But exactly. it's being able to build a sort of, you know, a suit of armor around you that it doesn't matter. You, you know, you're on your road and you're just getting on with it and you're, as you say, executing, right? Because it is a slog and it's step by step, right? Exactly. And, and the, if I think closely about your question, for example, when we had the coffee public idea, of course, I had to ring some friends. So, for example, I had no idea about what leasing a shop is. So I would call a friend who happened to be in of the course. property world, you know, who was a sort of estate agent. But, you know, you make that call to find out, but you're not asking the friend, do you think I should leave my career and open the UK's first coffee bar chain because you know, and was, that's the mistake people make. You know, specifically contact people and specifically ask your network about specific things they can help you with. You know, what branding is. You know, where you buy your stuff from. You know, kind of advice, but don't ask them about the general. You know, that onus of whether or not you should sort of chuck in your career and start a business because it's just no, no one, one can answer. Can and answer that is that. such good advice, and it can be so discouraging if someone says you know, applying their own psyche and psychological reference points and their own risk parameters to you, you know, Absolutely. and you're a totally different person. And it could be your parents, you know, exactly. or your husband or your best friend. But completely, it doesn't even completely. matter, you know, it's about sticking with that instinct, which is very, very hard. And I think, you know, maybe it's the ability to do that makes people go for it more. Tell me, coming back to women, Sahar, you know, what do we do about this? I know you and I have been Change the bumper for many years looking at you know encouraging more women to set up businesses <laughs> mentoring just being a support you know in the end of a phone for anyone that wants to have a chat with us what is shifting if anything now that we've come through this covid year more businesses are being set up probably also through necessity but that's a good thing you know it feels like people are starting to move again what's your advice to those women out there who are slightly on the fence through fear or just getting in their own way Gosh, I mean, my, my advice would be just, yeah. just to go for it because women make incredible entrepreneurs. I mean, recently we've had the Alison Rose Review on Female Entrepreneurship that's come out showing that, you know, if we um, level up the gender parity and have as many women as men start a business, that's an extra $250 billion Seriously, incredible, right? So listen, you know, we're all looking for how, how on earth to kind of catch up for pandemic recovery. So women are obviously the answer. And, you know, the, the Rose Review has is tackling so many areas around, you know, education, around finance, around work-life balance for women. You know, a lot of areas are being tackled. And I'm hoping that with our campaign um, that you're part of the, the Buy Women Build, we also increase the visibility and just kind of, you know, because confidence is a real issue for women. And that's what came out in the Rose Review. You know, it's almost like women have, they're delusional right. in that they think they haven't got the skill set, you know, whereas I think sometimes men can be delusional in, in the overconfidence. Women are delusional yeah. in the underconfidence. They actually 
feel they haven't got the skill set when they've got the skill set? And, you know, how can we change this barrier that they've got? How can we get, they've got to get out of their own way and just drop this idea that they can't do it, that they're not good enough. You know, as women, we've got to, you know, we're so amazing at everything, but we have this very loud voice in our heads, Dee, as you and I often talk about. And it's getting out of our own way, really, because that's what stops us reaching our full potential. And, you know, as much as we can, the more we can kind of almost showcase, hero, all these wonderful stuff women have done. So at least they can just well, it's about a shift, get, get isn't it? And it's sometimes these micro shifts that lead to bigger yeah. change. I also think that, you know, and we've talked about this sort of feminine power. You don't have to be, you know, like a Wall Street banker of old as a woman, you know, you can just be you and do you. And I, you know, I think part of this is people really embracing the fact that they are different, you know, we're all absolutely different from one another. Absolutely. Of course, many things bind us together and connect us and thank God for that. But, you know, just going, I don't need to be like those other people. I don't need to dress like those other people. I don't need to conform. I can just, you know, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's back to what's the worst that can happen, right? Just give it a go, right? Yeah. No, no, completely. And there's so many, you know, I mean, the, the, when you and I were growing up, probably the idea of a businesswoman yeah. was a sort of power big hair. suits. And, you know, it's not like that anymore. <laughs> and it, big hair, exactly. And that was sort of quite masculine in a way. And the beauty now is just really the essence of diversity is, is being able to be yourself. Whoever you are, there's something that you can add. And, and I think women, you know, I've never met a woman who's not strong. I've never met a woman who's not absolutely incredible. You know what I mean? Just it was so strong, so resourceful. So I'm packing it all in, right? With yet, you know, with you know, with work and families yeah, and absolutely. kids occasionally, or pets, or God knows what. Just making it all fit into their own sort of, you know, hermetically sealed ecosystem, Completely. right? Absolutely. That's right. I mean, they're heroes in their own lives. And it's just a question of actually, you know, we could also do that in business because the economy needs more women. You know what I mean? We, we, it, it's the sort of untapped engine of our recovery is women. So, um, you know, let's get out there. Oh, I couldn't agree fun. more because also, you know, to the, to the point, like just it. enjoying yeah. the journey as well, right? And having good time along the way and being with people Absolutely. who support one another. And I think women are very, very good at doing that. Tell me, sorry, you, you, you know, give a lot of... Um, direction and advice to corporates, to people that, um, you know, you speak to as a mentor, as a guide, as a coach, you know, when you go on the, on the speaking circuit, you know, a la grande on an international level, well, we'll be resuming that any second. Um, you know, you, you talk to very large groups about, about these themes and you give direction in your own, you know, fantastic, creative, full of humor way. What has the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Gosh, I think everything goes back um, to my parents. I remember my dad, um, the best piece of advice he ever gave me was, I remember I was doing my law exams and I was just stressing and telling him, but, you know, we there's only 60% pass rates at this kind of, it was the sort of final law exam I had to do to become a solicitor. And I was like 60% and, you know, so they're 40% fail. And he said to me, I remember where I was in my bedroom when he said that to me, he said, you know what? You just do your best. That's all you can control yeah. and let God do the rest. And this idea of, I just remember the comfort I got that all yeah. I can do is do my best. And then if I do my best, that's all I can put there. And then somehow the universe, you know, God does the rest. And of course, that's what happened. You know, I happened to pass that exam. And it's really giving me that, you know, because we try to control so much ourselves and, and we can't. And the only thing we can do is fully turn up every single day 
for ourselves and just put it all in there. Just put it all out there, put it all in there. Absolutely. You know, whatever. And, and, you know, I remember once you gave me some very good advice um, when I was navigating my way down some road, metaphorically, and you just said, look, even if it feels like chaos, just get stuff done and keep going and keep moving. And I, I really believe in that because I think yeah. it it generates momentum. So, Sarah, we have to wrap, but I have one final question for you. I know I could talk oh. to you all day and, and we'll do very soon again. Um, tell me, if you could have coffee with anyone, past or present, who would that be? Gosh, you know, I mean, and I'm not saying this, I love having <laughs> coffee with you, Dee. You always light me up. I mean, I have a zillion sort of other women in my life I love to have coffee with but I suppose if it's past um oh, I really course. miss my mom so of I'd love course. to have coffee with my mom I'd give anything yeah. to have a conversation yeah. with her again and it's been um 13 years but yeah I love just one more conversation well I think you know that's really beautiful and touching and you know don't stop sharing her words of wisdom because you often do that with me which I really really appreciate Sarah, you are incredible. Thank you so much for being with me. And um, I'm super excited about the next venture. Uh, and we'll be hearing a lot more about that very, very soon. Yeah, I loved it. It really was like a double espresso of everything. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Double Espresso with D, with me, D Sterling. If you enjoyed it, I'd love you to review and subscribe to the podcast so we can share these amazing stories with others. I'd also love to connect with you. So feel free to contact me via Instagram DM at D double espresso. Until the next time, au revoir.